So it is February 25th, 2018, in New Los Angeles, California. And we're reading from Bhagavad Gita. I'm going to read from 629. So this is in the chapter on Jnan Yoga. So the Sanskrit of this verse is Sarva Bhuta Stamatmanam Sarva Bhuta Nichatmani Ikshite Yoga Yuktatma Sarvatra Sama Darshanaha. And the translation is A true yogi observes me, me means Krishna, who's speaking, in all beings and also sees every being in me. Indeed, the self-realized person sees me, the same Supreme Lord, everywhere. Purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. A Krishna conscious yogi is the perfect seer because he sees Krishna, the Supreme, situated in everyone's heart as super soul, Paramatma. Ishvara Sarvabhutanam Rudeshir Dhinatishtati. The Lord in his Paramatma feature is situated within both the heart of the dog and that of a Brahmana. Brahmana means an intelligent person. The perfect yogi knows that the Lord is eternally transcendental and is not materially affected by his presence in either a dog or a Brahmana. That is the supreme neutrality of the Lord. The individual soul is also situated in the individual heart, but he is not present in all hearts. That is the distinction between the individual soul and the super-soul. One who is not factually in the practice of yoga cannot see so clearly. A Krishna-conscious person can see Krishna in the heart of both the believer and the non-believer. In the Smriti, Sadvata Tantra 349, this is cons- confirmed as follows. The Lord being the source of all beings is like the mother and the maintainer. As the mother is neutral to all different kinds of children, the supreme father or mother is also. Consequently, the super soul is always in every living being. Outwardly also, every living being is situated in the energy of the Lord. As will be explained in the seventh chapter, the Lord has primarily two energies, the spiritual or superior and the material or inferior. The living entity, although part of the superior energy, is conditioned by the inferior energy. The living entity is always in the Lord's energy. Every living entity is situated in him in one way or another. The yogi sees equally because he sees that all living entities although in different situations, according to the results of fruitive work, in all circumstances remain the servants of God. While in the material energy, the living entity serves the material senses, and while in the spiritual energy, he serves the Supreme Lord directly. In either case, the living entity is the servant of God. This vision of equality is perfect in a person in Krishna consciousness. We're going to read the Sanskrit and English of the translation again. Sarva Bhuta Samatmanam, Sarva Bhuta Nichatmani, Ikshite Yoga Yuktatma, Sarvatra Samadarshinha. 
A true yogi observes me, that's Krishna, in all beings, and also sees every being in me. Indeed, the self-realized person sees me, the same Supreme Lord, everywhere. So we have this word, sama darshina. Sama means equally. And darshina means to see, to see everyone equally. So this ideal of seeing everyone equally is something that's very much a tenant of modern society, yes? It's one of the main uh, ideals, philosophical ideals, political ideals, social ideals of our modern society. Everyone should be seen equally, is that correct? Yes? And I think especially in uh, countries such as America, we really have the idea of an egalitarian society. I mean, there are some cultures in the world that are more hierarchical. They're more concerned with, okay, what's your status in society? But we have a, a very strong ethos, especially in the United States, that this is a very egalitarian society and we should see everyone equally. Uh, does it work? Have we been successful with this? No. Not, not very, we haven't really done a very good job of it, have we? I mean, even the beginning of the country, it said that all men are created equal, but at the beginning of the country, did we treat even all men equally? No. no. When the country began, we had what? Slavery. And of course, I mean, when I was growing up, the word men meant all humans. Uh, but even if you took it as, as males, we certainly didn't treat women equally, did we? That's a very recent uh, effort that still hasn't uh, fructified. But even we weren't seeing all males equally. And then what to speak of the non-humans? Do we see the non-human beings equally? No. No. So there's starting to be a, a movement, a consciousness in society that we should also be treating the animals with respect. Starting. Someone just told me that of the baby boomers, only 1% are vegetarian, but among the millennials it's 12%. So there is starting to be a move like that, but still we have a long way to go, isn't it? And we might ask, why is it so difficult to actually see every living entity equally? Well, we have it as a philosophical concept. I mean, and this is not just a philosophical concept in the Hare Krishna movement. It's not, this is not just a concept, you know, within these walls of the Hare Krishna movement in Los Angeles. It's some weird concept that Hare Krishna people have. It's a concept people in general have. But it seems to be very difficult to actualize, to live by. So we're going to look at, well, why is it so difficult and how can we actually do it? So one reason it's difficult is that when we look externally, living beings don't seem to be equal at all. We talk about equality, but I mean, is really an elephant... I was showing the Bhagavad Gita to my granddaughter the other day and there's a, a painting of the Battle of Kurukshetra. So she said, she's just three years old. She says, horse, horse. And I said, what else is there? Oh, elephant. 
So the elephants in that painting of the, of the Bhagavad Gita I had there were like, I don't know, three times higher than the horses. They were particularly large elephants. So an elephant and a horse is not equal. The elephant is a lot stronger. The horse is a lot faster. And even if we want to look within species, right, a German shepherd and a poodle, they're not equal. <laughs> and, and then even if we want to look at individual humans, some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us are healthy, some of us are sickly. I, I have a friend who has an IQ of 189. So I went and looked it up. There's only like 300 people on the whole planet who have an IQ that high. You know, some of us are just like barely getting to the 100. You know. So we're not all equal, apparently. We seem to be very different. We have talents in different areas. And, and we can say practically, some people are better than others. Isn't it? Right? We just had the Winter Olympics. Does everybody get the gold medal? No. One person in each category. I I saw something, I I forget what category it was in. Somebody got the silver medal and they were so disgusted that they hadn't gotten the gold medal. They immediately just took it off. (laughs) I'm I'm only number two in the world. (laughs) So, you know, this is... We recognize some people are better at, you know, ice skating than others. I mean, I wouldn't even be in the competition. Right? And it's not only that we have, we're different physically and we have different abilities, but we also have a problem with our own internal envy. I mean, I'm sure none of you have any problem with envy, but at least I do. So, you know, if I see somebody who's better than me, I don't like it. There's this this tendency that when someone's better, we want to pull them down. And if someone's equal, we want to brag about how good we are. And if someone's lower, we want to keep them down and exploit them. And there's this internal problem, this internal sort of psychological problem, also makes it very difficult to treat everybody equally. I was, uh, many years ago, I was at an ecological conference in Hungary, and one of the, it was Hare Krishna devotees and other people as well, it was like a general conference, and one of the professors, not a Hare Krishna devotee, got up and, and said, and said, the real problem with ecology is the Americans. So I was kind of, you know, sliding. <laughs> the Americans are taking an unfair share of the world's resources. And he said, you know, but all of us want to live like the Americans. If any of you travel, you'll notice this phenomenon. He said, but we can't do it, there's too many people. So what we should do is greatly restrict the population so that everybody can live like Americans. Right? So, do we really want everybody to live like us? I mean, would we want to pay prices for the things we buy based on everybody having our level of living. Would we? Would we want to do that? Can you imagine how much everything in the shop would be? I mean, I I remember once many years ago getting a sari in India that's like six yards, right? 
and it was all hand embroidered, the entire sari. It cost me $10. And I was feeling so guilty. I bought it, but anyway. <laughs> you know, just thinking about, okay, how many people were involved with this? So somebody's growing the cotton, and then somebody's, you know, carding the cotton, and making the cotton cloth, and then making the threads, and then making the cloth, and then dyeing the cloth, and then just the embroidery. I mean, for me to embroider a little, like, two-inch by two-inch things takes me a few hours, and this was six yards by, what is it, six by one yard, and the whole thing was embroidered. And then, of course, the transport and so forth. I said, probably the person who embroidered this is getting, what, 50 cents out of that $10. Now, do I, but do, would I like to pay each person involved in that process the equivalent of what I enjoy? Would we all like to do that? We can say, oh, sure, we would like to do that. But, but actually, we don't. And that's, I'm sorry, but that's envy. <laughs> that I want to have more than other people. I want to keep others down so I can exploit them. I mean, that's the whole basis of the whole, of the whole meat industry. You know, one wants to keep the animals in a miserable condition so they can exploit them. Just like I have a friend who runs a farm and I, I buy my milk from his farm. You know, but it's $10 for half a gallon. Right? But people don't want to pay $10. They don't want to pay $20 for a gallon of milk. So they'd rather keep the animals in some miserable condition. They don't really want the animals to have as nice of a life as they have. So it's this internal envy and this internal greed that I want to enjoy at the cost of others. I don't want everyone equal to me. I don't want to treat everybody the way that I'm treated. I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. Or if I want to love my neighbor as myself, that's only if I want to define my neighbor very narrowly. So then my neighbor are, you know, other humans or other humans who are also Americans or other humans who are Americans with the same color skin or the same color religion. And those people should be treated equally, but everybody else, something else. And this internal problem makes it difficult no matter what propaganda we make and what kind of laws we make, how we educate our children, how much the media pushes equality, that it just doesn't happen. And we can protest and this and that, and we still end up with, without this samat darshinaha, without this equal vision. So here Krishna is saying, and it's interesting, this is in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. This is the chapter dealing with Dhyan Yoga. Dhyan Yoga is what a lot of people think about when they think about yoga beyond just doing exercises. If you think about someone, you know, meditating, or people now, meditation has become very popular. The word for meditation in Sanskrit, well, it's one of the words, is dhyan. So here Krishna is talking about the meditative yogi, somebody who's trying to realize the supreme through a mechanical process. And the supreme yoga that Krishna teaches in the Bhagavad Gita is bhakti yoga, those who realize the supreme through love. 
And he explains very clearly at the end of this chapter, Yoginam Apisarvesham, Madhutenantaratmana, Shradavam Bajate Yomam, Samayuktatamahomataha. That those who try to reach the Supreme through love are much higher than those who try to reach the Supreme through a mechanical process. And even though what he's describing here is not the highest form of yoga or the highest process of enlightenment, even in this process of enlightenment, one attains samadarshinaha. One attains actual equality of vision and equality of action. So how is this possible? So one explanation that's given here is that one sees that in every body, in every form, in every living form, is a soul. And that soul is of equal value. There's, I mean, we have the term Mahatma, Mahatma, the great soul. But by that we mean somebody who's realized that everybody is of equal value. We don't mean that the great soul is intrinsically of a higher value. So even in this mechanical type of yoga, one starts to understand that every living being is a soul of equal value. The body in which the living being is housed are of all unequal values. Some are faster, some are smarter, some have better vision, some have better smell, whatever. But the soul inside is of equal value and equal potency. There's no distinction like that between one soul and another in terms of value and in terms of its intrinsic nature. So one sees that that is what is equal. And the soul is the real being. It's something like all of us have different clothes. Some of us have like, this sari costs 500 rupees, which is, I don't know, that's about $8, I think. So some of you may have clothes that cost, you know, $100. We have some uh, shawls up in the shop, right? How much are they? $500? $500. So some of you may be wearing a $500 jacket, and some of you may be wearing a $5 jacket. So there's different values to the clothes that we're wearing. But we as persons have the same intrinsic value. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so it's just like that one sees in yoga, one sees that the body is just clothing. And it's as temporary, really, as the clothing we're wearing. In fact, Krishna gives that analogy earlier on in the Bhagavad Gita, that we're changing our bodies just like we change clothing. You know, when, when, this, when the clothes we're wearing now become worn out or stained or ripped or something... We get rid of it and we get a new set of clothes. And when this body gets useless, and uh, whether through disease or accident or just age, then we get rid of it and we get another one. So the yogi also sees that we're moving from one body to another. And actually all of us end up having our turn in all gradations of bodies. You know, right now in this life, I'm not the best ice skater, but I might have been in another life. I'm not some big genius, you know, one of only 300 people in the world, but I've had that in another life, or I'll have that in a future life. That all of us have a turn going through these different bodies of different gradations and different abilities. But we always remain the same soul of equal value. 
You know, if there's someone that you love, you're not going to love them more when they're dressed in expensive clothing. Or love them less, you know, if they're working out in the garden and they're wearing some old torn clothing. So the real yogi sees like that. They see the value of a living being remains constant regardless of the particular form that living being is inhabiting at that moment. And in fact, a yogi sees how that living being is moving from one form to another, apparently having more or less external value. Now if you see that, you're not going to take the particular external value that someone has at this particular moment very seriously. Right? Does that make sense? So, you know, if someone you love, if they're painting the walls and so they're wearing old clothing with paint on them, you're not going to take that clothing very seriously in terms of evaluating the value of that person or your relationship with them. So the yogi looks at the, a dog and sees, oh, that's the soul in the body of a dog, but it was in the body of a human. Again, it will be in the body of a human. It will be in the body of a celestial. It will be in the body of a bug. And the value remains the same. And the other point that Krishna makes in this verse is that one sees not only the equal soul, but one sees God. As Prabhupada quotes here, as far as that in every body is God. Just like this is a, an ordinary building made out of, I don't know, bricks and concrete and wood and so many things. But here we've established the form of the Lord and we have a sign that says, this is a temple of God. Eh? But actually God is in every building. Somebody may establish his, his worship there or not, but he's there. The difference in this building is that we're acknowledging it. And this, this tilak mark on our forehead is a sign that I'm acknowledging the body I'm in as a temple of God. I'm acknowledging that God lives within this body. I mean, he lives everywhere. Why not within the body? And so also, the real yogi sees that in every form of life, there is the Lord. There is the Lord. I mean, this is a, a very beautiful and, and large temple, but there are also small temples. If you travel around the world and see different Hare Krishna temples, some of them are very small. Some of them are in old buildings that are not so well kept up, but they're still a temple of the Lord. So one may see, all right, well, there's this body, that body, the other body, this body is very nice, that... But in all of them, the Lord is there. And therefore, the yogi offers respect to everyone. Oh, you are carrying the Lord. You are a temple of the Lord. So this is a, a philosophical concept. That all life is a soul. That all souls are equal in value and intrinsically of the same thing, eternally. They're simply changing bodies and there's God there. So that's a good start. But if we leave it at the platform of theoretical, philosophical understanding, we're still going to have a problem. Because this philosophical understanding solves only half of our original problem and not the other half. Remember, the first half of our problem is that from the bodily perspective, we don't see equality. 
That was our first problem. And our second problem was our internal difficulty that I don't really want everybody to be equal. So we've solved the one problem by saying that although there's apparent disparities between persons based on the body, I mean, there are real disparities based on the body, but they're only apparent in terms of the real person. When I solve that philosophical problem, I, and if I haven't solved the other problem of my wanting to have more than others and my wanting to keep others down so that I can exploit them and take from them unfairly, then just having the philosophical idea is not enough. It simply becomes, you know, another just series of political platitudes that, that one can stay as some kind of a slogan. You know, yes, we're not this body, all souls are equal, and blah, 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 and then you go on acting the same way. Perhaps you feel more guilty about it or something, but, or, the, or then you just justify it in another way. <laughs> So in order to really treat everyone equally and see everyone equally, we have to not only understand the physical, phys, um, philosophical concept, but we have to change our mentality. We have to take up a process by which we are satisfied with what we have and we genuinely take our happiness in the happiness of others. In fact, that's the definition of love. The definition of love is I find happiness in the happiness of those that I love. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we mean by love? If, if love just means, well, I find you attractive and I want to enjoy you, <laughs> that's objectifying you. Like I can say, oh, I, I find this attractive. I want to, I love this because I find it attractive and I want to enjoy it. You know, so if I'm treating another living being like that, not very satisfying. But if I find happiness in your happiness, I see that you're happy and, and I vicariously enjoy your happiness. Oh, we all have experience of this. We do something nice for someone we love. We sacrifice for someone we love. And that sacrifice feels to us like pleasure. If you're cooking for someone you love, you enjoy the cooking for them as much as you enjoy the eating of the food. Right? You're going to throw a party for someone you love. You enjoy the preparation and the shopping and the decorating as much as you enjoy the party. So the way we get rid of this feeling of envy and the way we get rid of this desire to keep others under us and exploit them through whatever rationalizations we use is to love them. We want the people that we love to enjoy as much as we do. We see this even in little children. Little children want to share their food with their parents or their brothers and sisters, isn't it? Naturally they want to do. Very, very young children, one, two years old, they, they, they want to share their food with their parents. So how do we come to this point where we don't want to exploit anyone? Where not only do I want everyone to have as much as I have and be as happy as I am, I want them even to be happier than I am. 
again, we even see this in this world where the parent wants the child to be better than they are. Maybe the parent, you know, didn't even finish high school, but they work hard so the child can finish college. They'll work two jobs, three jobs, and when the child graduates from college, that's their happiness. So how do we get to this point that we have such love for all living beings that we really do love them as much as we love ourselves? We can only do this by first falling in love with the source of all of us, the center. Therefore, the solution is to fall in love with God. And you might say, well, or me, well, you know, there's a lot of religions in the world and a lot of people talk about loving God and we don't really see that it solved the problem. Well, okay, if one takes up a religion the way people get involved with nationality or their football team, then you're right. If religion becomes simply another material designation, you know, like I'm a Yankees fan, I'm a Catholic, I mean, if it becomes like that, then, yeah. You know, I'm an American, so as an American, I celebrate Thanksgiving and Halloween and the 4th of July, and if it becomes, you know, well, I'm a Muslim, so I celebrate Ramadan and... If, it, if it's that kind of taking up religion, then the effect really isn't there. But if one takes up religion and actually falls in love with God, which means that one has to go beyond rituals as rituals and beliefs as beliefs. The essence of religion is not a certain code of beliefs. Do you believe this? Okay, you're religious. Or a certain set of rituals. Do you worship the Lord this way or that way? Do you light a candle? Do you light a ghee lamp? Do you say your prayers in Latin? Do you say your prayers in Sanskrit? Okay, I do it this way. I say it in Sanskrit. Okay. One has to go see that the purpose of beliefs and rituals is to come to love. It's just like, you know, we just had Valentine's Day. So Valentine's Day isn't just about getting your wife or your girlfriend roses so that she'll be happy with you and you won't fight. It's not what it's about. It's, a, it's about, okay, this is, we're going to have some rededication of affection and love. So religion isn't about, well, I'm going to do this right and this right and this right so I won't go to hell and I'll go to heaven and the other people in my religion will respect me and people in the world will say, what a religious person you are. No, the purpose is to fall in love with God. Now, how does that solve the problem? if you actually fall in love with God. Because all living beings are part of God. They're all the same quality as God. And if we try to get equality and freedom from envy, without first falling in love with God, we will fail. Because 
because I see everyone equal because they're part of God. They're an equal part of God. And everyone has value because God loves them. And I should treat everybody as good as I treat myself and equal with myself because that will make God happy. And because that's how He sees everybody. Shiva Prabhupada often gives the example that if you try to make a plant healthy, you put water, fertilizer on the root of the plant. You don't try to water, you know, each lemon and each leaf. If you want to be healthy, you put food in your mouth for your stomach. You don't try to put food in your ears. So if we want to love everyone equally, we have to first love the source. We have to first love God. Actually love God. And we see practically that those who come to love of God, like Srila Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada saw the obvious differences between bodies. He didn't ask a three-year-old to drive a truck. It wasn't that he didn't. It wasn't that he didn't see that there's a difference between various kinds of bodies. But no matter who he came in contact with, he always treated everybody with equal respect, with equal facility, with equal opportunity. Always. And that was true not only of the humans with whom he came in contact. It was true even with the bugs with whom he came in contact. Prabhupada was working on his books and he calls his servant, he had a little bell, call his servant. He says, there's a bug here on the plant. And I don't think he's, he's getting enough to eat. He's in distress. Would you put him outside? Srila Prabhupada came from India to America and the people that he was working with in America had a vastly different culture. I mean, most of the first people he encountered, we'd have to say that even by American standards, were rather uncultured. But Prabhupada saw them as having equal value. It was one of the the first things that you'd notice about Srila Prabhupada is that he didn't have a desire to exploit anyone. Prabhupada was talking at one point that if you have an ideal society, you have the first class intellectuals, the second class government persons, and the fourth, the third class business persons, and the fourth class the artisans, the laborers. And one of the reporters said, so are you a first class person? He said, no, no, I'm fifth class person. Because I am serving everybody else. And that was genuinely how he felt. He genuinely felt, I want to help make everyone happy. I want to make everyone as happy as I am, or happier than I am. That was his mood. And one will see among our Hare Krishna society that the serious practitioners who are actually falling in love with God also have this mood. They treat all living beings as having equal value and they don't want to exploit anyone. They want everyone to become as happy and as satisfied and fulfilled or more so than themselves. 
So I'm sorry to say that we're not going to find a political or philosophical or social solution to this problem of inequality and exploitation. We can try and try and try. Has it been, has, it's been tried for hundreds or thousands of years. The solution is ultimately spiritual. And from the spiritual solution, the social, political solutions will naturally come. If we had a society where even a critical mass of people were actually in love with God, and actually from that love of God were free of the desire of exploitation, and had a philosophical understanding of the true equality of all beings. From that point, we could come up with laws and we could come up with policies that would actually work. So Krishna himself, God himself, is inviting us. His representative, like Srila Prabhupada, is inviting us. Come to this platform. And we see in our Hare Krishna movement, I mean, not that we're perfect with this in our movement, because not all of us are 100% in love with God. But you see within our movement, we don't have this kind of exploitive mentality. I see with the children who grow up in our movement, they, they don't see people in terms of the externals as being higher or lower. They just don't. It's not their vision. So I think the world is greatly in need of this, isn't it? I think it's one of the greatest needs of the world today. There, there's so much suffering and there's so much exploitation and there's so much harm being done by putting one living being as having greater value than another. That somehow we think certain, certain beings matter more than others. Whereas to Krishna, every living being matters equally. He's in love with everyone, and so should we be. So we have a little bit of time if you have any questions or comments or objections. Corrections? I have a question. Yes. Oh. So where, where, where does discrimination, where does that fit in? Where does discrimination like, fit in? I mean, like, if you think every microscope to a snake, and like a cobra, and hug a cobra. Well, it's interesting you ask about a snake, because one of the great teachers in our line, Narada Muni, actually did make a snake Krishna conscious. <laughs> Sorry. We're not Narada Muni. I'm not <laughs> But he, he did do that. Um, no, I mean, there, there, there's a difference between seeing everyone as equal value and treating everybody exactly the same. I mean, as I said, Prabhupada didn't ask a three-year-old to drive a car. So, you know, you don't, you're not going to want the birds to come in the temple room because they can't control their bodily functions, and you'd have a big mess in the room. So there's some adjustment for what kind of body the living being has. 
and how they're behaving. But that doesn't mean they're not of equal value. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're not sure? It's all right. Yes. talking about, for example, like like the body that I'm in is, is getting old. Okay. You know, like my hair is turning white and not everything works the way it used to. But there's still, my body's still a temple of God. Okay. Like that. So, you know, there was a time when I had a body like that. Right? Where I was actually like cute. <laughs> oh, really? Never mind. But, but God's in her heart and God's in my heart. That was my point. So we can have a, a very beautiful temple like this and we might have a little old building that's kind of falling apart and pipes aren't working right and whatever. But we still, we still have God in that building. So if, you're, you know, if your body's beautiful or if your body's falling apart, still it's a temple of God. That was my point. Is that all right? Yes, thank you. Yes. Can, can I just give you the microphone? Yeah, that would be good. Does God love the devotees more? No. <laughs> He's reciprocating. No, he loves everybody. And he loves everybody equally. He says that he envies no one and no one is his favorite. But yet the devotees are very dear to him. Why? Because he's very dear to them. So, you know, if a parent has more than one child and one child runs away from home and doesn't want to talk to them and has nothing to do with them and the other child is very close to them, it doesn't, it's not that the parent loves the one child more than the other. But, you know, if your grown-up kid doesn't want to talk to you, you're probably not going to call them every day. You might want to. Does that make sense? But it's not, it's not that you have any less love for them. I mean, I, I met a, a family whose son was a heroin addict, and they said they couldn't let him into the house because he would steal. But it was traumatic. I mean, the mother was traumatized. She wanted to let him into the house. It wasn't that she wanted to keep him out of the house. She didn't. But she just couldn't let him in the house. So, no, Krishna loves everybody equally. But if you want to reciprocate that love, then you may be aware of more of that love. So those who don't want to reciprocate with it, are not, they're not very aware of it. I mean, most living beings in this world are, are really unaware of how much they're loved. 
it's, it's, they're, they're kind of closing it off. Thank you. Yes? We could probably have just to, we could have time for a few more. Yes? Wait, wait for the mic. Okay. Uh, of course, as opposed to family relationships, do you think that it's possible uh, for two devotees to love each other and love God too? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, are you really asking this question? How embarrassing that that we have to have this question being asked. You know, should I talk about lower stages of bhakti or higher stages of bhakti or both? What do you want? Both. Okay. So Prabhupada says in the Nectar of Instruction, text 4, that the purpose of the Hare Krishna society is to nurture these loving relationships between the devotees. You know, and the seven purposes of ISKCON, one of them is to bring us closer to Krishna, the prime entity, and also to bring us closer with each other. It's one of the purposes of ISKCON. Nectar of Instruction, text four, check it out. That's about the, the loving exchanges, giving and receiving prasadam, giving and receiving confidences, giving and receiving gifts. And there's two wonderful sentences there about how that this loving exchanges is what really nourishes the society of devotees and is the purpose for the society of devotees. Yes, it's possible. Now, if our love for God is imperfect, our love for other entities will also be imperfect. But it's not an on-off switch. It's not that either you do, it's a gradual thing. So as I gradually come to love Krishna, I will also gradually have genuine love for others. And Krishna talks about this is the most satisfying thing. That when we gather together to glorify Krishna, when we gather together in love for Krishna, we feel great happiness and satisfaction between each other. Now, in the spiritual world, if everybody just loved Krishna but they didn't love each other, does that sound like it would be a very nice place? Would you want to go there? I mean, whenever people talk about this like vindictive idea of God, you love me? Okay, heaven. You didn't? Hell. I mean, I just think, why do you want to be with somebody like that? Whenever people talk about God as this really like nasty, selfish person, I just can't fathom why they want to dedicate their lives to somebody like that. It always bewilders me. So it's very nicely explained in the Bhagavatam, in the description of the kingdom of God, that in the spiritual world, all the residents there are glorifying all the other residents. It says there that the beautiful and sweetly singing birds become quiet to listen to the buzzing of the bees. Now, we don't think of the bees buzzing as being as harmonious and beautiful as the birds, but they have no envy. So the birds are thinking, oh, the bees are also glorifying the Lord. And it says the beautiful flowers, all different colors, all different fragrances, 
they offer respect to Tulsi. Now, Tulsi has a fragrance and a beauty, but we don't think of a Tulsi plant like a rose or a gardenia, right? But those flowers, they're offering respect to Tulsi because she's so dear to the Lord. So there's this mood of appreciation. Prabhupada says the mood in the spiritual world is that everyone appreciates everyone else's service. And that no one sees, oh, this service is higher, this service is lower. They see all these services are equally adored by the Lord. Now, one of the uh, unique features, or one of the special features of the advanced sages of bhakti is that not only do you become very attached to the Lord, but you also become very attached to a particular devotee who has a similar mood to you. So as you progress in Krishna consciousness, you'll find that you get a, a particular mood of loving the Lord awakens in you. And then you'll get attached to a devotee in the spiritual world who has a similar mood. And it's explained nicely by Rupa Goswami and by other acharyas like Vishnu Chakravati Thakur that one loves that devotee practically the same as they love the Lord. If you want a nice example of this, there's a song called Sri Rupa Manjali Pada which is an expression of great love for another devotee. So that's at very advanced stages of Krishna consciousness. But the, the primary symptom of being at an advanced stage of Krishna consciousness is that one has love for a devotee of the Lord, practically speaking, equal to the love for the Lord. That, that is the demarcation between the beginning devotee and the advanced devotee. And the more that one has advanced, realized persons, the more there is genuine love between the devotees. Is that all right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're not sure? I mean, would you want to be in a society where we, where we don't even aspire to love each other? Would that be attractive? No. I mean, you can, you know, you can always go to this as, as a kind of just logical construct. That if, if you really, if most people, you know, most like normal people would be really repulsed by it, it probably isn't true. Does that make sense to you? Like we all have an innate desire for happiness. We all have an innate desire for healthy, vibrant life. We all have an innate desire for knowledge. We all have an innate desire for love. The fact that the, these things are universal is indicative that they exist in the reality. Does that make sense? So even if we don't find that in our material experience so much, the fact that we're all yearning for it, it means it must exist somewhere, otherwise where would the yearning have come from? I think we're out of time. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.